So we're, we're going to continue, or we're going to wrap up this a series called Unplugged This Week, right? And this is our fourth week, third week in the series. Corey Adolf preached one week on the woman at the well, which was awesome. And we're going to wrap up this series on, um, on being unplugged and what it looks like in our lives. Maybe that we need to kind of find quiet space or, or um, rest. I've heard from some of you say, man, it's awesome. I needed to hear that, that I can take a day off a week. It's for me, it's a blessing. I don't have to, but I can, I get to, right? Some of us make that into a law, um, but it's an opportunity. Uh, we learned that in the first week. The second week, we talked about this idea of restoration, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week with Elijah, spoiler alert, but that idea that we need some restoration to do things like eat and drink and sleep and repeat uh, until we feel like we're okay again, that we shouldn't be pushing and serving out of an emptiness or a brokenness because it could lead to catastrophe for us and those around us. And then this last week, uh, we're talking about the idea of getting peace and quiet. And I don't know if, uh, if it's true for you, but do you, do you have a hard time being quiet? I mean, do you find that hard to do? I'm, I'm the child of the 80s or whatever, 70s and 80s. I'm getting old. I'm old. It's fine. But I find myself, I can't even imagine, like, my daughter, my grandson, what their lives can be like because I have the hardest time just getting quiet these days. I want to try something, and I'm going to have to get ready up here myself because I can't do it if I'm standing up. But I want to try something, and I want to... Um, try a minute of silence. You know, we had September 11th, and we were at a, uh, a band competition, and they said, let's all have a moment of silence. And we did, for those who lost their lives 9-11. But man, that clock inside your head's going, how long is this going to go on? We got things to do today. So let's try one minute. A weird experiment. It's going to be weird. I had to sit down because I want you to try to be uh, quiet not just with your words, but with your body. We've got people in the back. Come on, you're going to have to get quiet with us. <coughs> Coughing's loud. One minute. a minute. Didn't that feel like forever? I want to look at my phone. Is it broken? How long is this going to take? Isn't that strange? How noisy are our lives? That one, one minute was weird. What we're going to talk about today, God's call for us to peace and quiet in our lives. 
By the way, I, I was preparing to preach this, and so part of the thing I did between us moving out last Sunday and moving is I'm like, I'm going to go to the park, and I'm going to set. We used to have a rule when I was a youth pastor that the minutes my move to talk to you to start over, the timer, and we got up to like 15, 20 minutes of setting in silence. It was a youth group. It was crazy. So I'm like, I'm going to go to the park, and I'm going to do it for an hour. I lasted 20 minutes. It was driving me absolutely crazy. And I kept having to reset the clocks. So I had to, you know, tell my talk, something happened. It's so hard. And if you're like me, uh, that's not unreasonable. But what is God saying to us about getting quiet? Why does being quiet matter in our lives? Pray with me, if you will. We're going to ask him for the wisdom today from his word. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning, for a chance to be gathered together in your name. We are pleased to make noise for your namesake, to celebrate, to proclaim your goodness to us and all the earth, that you, our God who made us, loved us so much that you would send your son to die, that we could all be free, and then not only to die for our sins, that we could know eternal life, but to give your Holy Spirit now in this life to teach us. I pray, Lord, this morning as we seek you and your word, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would teach us in our hearts, indeed with that still, small voice. Help us, Father, to listen to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, a few weeks ago, I went on a motorcycle trip with my brother-in-law. I just mentioned that again, not to brag about it, because I did it, but one of the things that happened on that trip I want to share with you was some time to talk to him about some stuff. And if you know my brother-in-law, he's an awesome dude. He's also a chaplain in the Air Force, and he's a former pastor, and I had him all to myself. And so I took the full opportunity as like a counselor, and I was dumping on him. And I was telling him about how we don't have a building, and we got these things going on in the church, and I have this insatiable quest for knowledge. And I was just going, I was just, you know, and I was just, and Rich is going, listening, and he goes, you know, you might need to be still. And I'm like, oh, I can be still. And then he goes, no, Bill, you might need to be still. You know what the Bible says? And he quoted this at me, pastors, you know how they are. Be still and what? Know that I'm God. And I, I don't think I'm, am I not still rich? I'm pretty, he says, I don't think that you are. You may need to be still in your life. He said, you may need to be still in your quest to know things. You may need to be still in your desire to pursue things in your life. So I'm going to talk from that, talk, uh, teach from that for a minute today, or share it with you, I should say. Uh, Psalm 4610. This is the way the word reads, be still and know that I am God. You all quoted that from memory. Good job. Memory verse. Awesome. That's half the verse. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. That's the complete verse. Psalm 46, verse 10. So what does it look like to, to be still and know that God is God in our lives. I, I'm worth remembering in the context of the psalm, because if you read Psalm 46, I would encourage you to read it, by the way. If you read Psalm 40, 46, the, the, the uh, author of the psalm is in the middle of pro, a proclamation about God's strength and his nearness to us, his presence for us. And in the middle of proclaiming God's strength and his nearness or presence to us, we are exhorted because of those things to be still and know that he's God. By the way, it's worth noting if you're looking at your Bible, it, mine doesn't say it in NIV, but the actual Greek says, he says, 
be still and know that I am God. And I go, wait a minute. The psalmist says, no. This is all about God. The whole psalm is about God. And it says that God himself says to us, be still and know that I am God. God says it himself, be still and know me. There's something in the stillness that's required for us to know God. And I know it's not very popular. It's not popular in my own head. I kind of want to be like a noisy pursuing God, you know, a God who talks a lot. Can you imagine? But he tells us to be still and know I'm God. Well, then I asked me a question, and I was talking to a dear friend of mine, Duke, this week, and I said, hey, Duke, what does it mean to be still anyway? You know, I don't know. I go, let's look it up. And we looked up, be still. What does it mean to be still? The word be still means um, to sink into something, um, to uh, to to lay down, or uh, actually it means in Hebrew the, the way that straw burns in a fire. Have you ever thrown something to a fire and you just watch it kind of crinkle and it can mean to be consumed, um, to be destroyed almost, to be still. It can mean to sink into a bed. Have you ever done that? Poof. This is interesting and it may be uncomfortable. It can mean to be lazy. The Bible says, be lazy and know that I'm God? No, that cannot be true. I don't know if you've ever sunk into a bed. I remember I used to travel for business, and uh, I don't know which chain it is. Maybe you remember, but they had something called the heavenly beds. Do you know who that is? Who is that? The heavenly beds? It was the weirdest thing, because you ever been to a really dive motel, like a really bad one? They got like that, that uh, vinyl spreadsheet thing that you can see the weaving and it's like sheen, you can see the sheen and the stain and you just lay on it and it's like cardboard and it's, it itches your skin. It's colored, all the colors so that you can't see where the stains are. You know what I'm saying? Well, well in the middle of a, of, a, of a hotel situation like that, I went to a place in Chicago. I remember it like it was yesterday because listen to the experience. I went in there and it was this great big bed and everything on it was white. White sheets white pillows, white pillow covers, and a white comforter. And I was like, bold moves. <laughs> How do you do that? But then I went to the edge of the bed, and I went to call my wife, and I laid back, and I went, poof. I, it was like laying in a snowdrift. You ever had that? And I called her, and I go, you won't believe where I am right now. <laughs> And she had, we had little kids, and they were, like, screaming and all that. And she's like, I don't want to hear where you are right now. <laughs> I just felt, it felt so indulgent. It felt ridiculous. I didn't deserve it. That's the idea of stillness in the Bible, to just go poof. To, to just rest in who God is, to allow a blessing for us, not because we deserve it. We certainly deserve the scratchy, stained-up sheets. We ruin everything. But God says, no, in the middle of the chaos, be still and know that I'm God. By the way, that second part's worth thinking about. Just the stillness isn't an end to itself, but there's something tied to it that because of our stillness, we can know God. I believe that God can reveal himself any way he wants to, but it's funny here that it's linked directly to know, to gain knowledge, to perceive, to understand who God is. And he says like this, be still and know what? That he is God. He himself. The, the antithetical would be, be still and know that you're not God. <laughs> but I am, 
Be still and recognize who I am in your life. Maybe in the middle of chaos more than anywhere else, we need to be still and know that he is God. Maybe that's the time, above all the times, we need to rest in him when we have the least inclination to rest. I've heard it said before, you just do something. Somebody do something. But maybe that's the moment we need God the most and we need to rest and know him. That's not where it ends, though. You pour that at me. Be still and know that I am God. But the rest says this. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And I read that, and I'm like, okay, so God's like, hey, be still and know that I'm God because I'm awesome, and everybody's going to know it. Not just all the peoples, but the entire planet is going to know how awesome I am because I'm exalted. But I said but a bunch in there, and there's no but in the sentence. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among all people. I will be exalted among all the earth, God says, of himself. What does that mean? That means that he will be recognized by everyone, that our being still in him is somehow an exaltation that he is God, and dare I say it, that our stillness, our willingness to fight, our tendency to always be doing something is the very thing that exalts him amongst all people and indeed lets him be proclaimed in all the earth. Have you ever had that experience before? Everyone's freaking out and you just think, we, I shouldn't, we can't freak out right now. Why? God is God right now. We as a Species as a people, we are, we are um, infectious with fear, you know. We, it just spreads among us. But what does it mean to be still? And I don't mean in like a head, but in a real life trial. How does God, how does being still exalt God among all others? Or how does God, I'm sorry, how does being still exalt God before others in our life, before the earth? And maybe most importantly, and this is why I was so upset with myself for the 20-minute thing. How does being still exalt God in my own heart? Or the other way to say it is, how does my busyness not exalt God in my heart? Well, I wanted to lay that down as a foundation of God's uh, exhortation to us to be still and know that he's God. But I want to pick up where we left off last week with Elijah. Elijah, I said, I love him. He's like a sarcastic prophet. He is doing great work. God's using him for great things. But in the middle of this, where God uh, rained down fire to destroy the offering on, on Mount Carmel, I believe it was, by the way, I said Horeb last week, Elijah fled because the queen, because he killed all the prophets of the queen, the Baal prophets. And the queen's like, I'm going to get you. Her name is Jezebel. And Elijah flees from the king and queen. But you remember that he ran until he got on this broom tree, and then God restored him and protected him. And he ran from Mount Carmel all the way to Mount uh, Horeb, which is, uh, he took him 40 days, 40 nights to get there, right? The food that God gave him. And so we're going to pick up today now in 1 Kings 19, verse 9. This is right where we left off last week, where he had fled to the mountain of God. So uh, 1 Kings 19, chapter 9. There he went into a cave, that's Mount Horeb, and he spent the night there. So that's very similar to what he had been doing under the broom tree. Eat, drink, sleep, 
repeat. But in this case, he now has been strengthened for the journey, and he runs to this cave in the mountain of God. Continuing, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He asked. Verse 10, Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And so after all this fleeing and being restored by God, he, he's confronted by God. What are you doing here? Why did you run to here? What led you here? And he spends the night in, the, in this cave in the mountain of God, all secure. But then God confronts him, and he asks, it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now, you must know that Elijah is a prophet of God. And this all started in, in 1 Kings 17 when he showed up, and he said there was going to be a drought because Baal is the god of rain. And so there's going to be a drought. He's speaking for God. And so whenever God having been used by God to proclaim to Israel what God is going to do. Now God brought the same word into Elijah's own life and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? Elijah answers, and by the way, as if God doesn't know everything that's already happened. I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> Elijah's like, well, let me tell you the day I've had, <laughs> you know. And he enumerates a few things. He says, first of all, I've always been zealous for you. That means I've always been passionate for you, Lord. I've, I've done all the hardest things. I've, I've, I've never, you know, pulled back from it. The second thing he tells God, Israel has forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets. So your people are betraying you. First of all, I'm faithful. Secondly, your people are betraying you, God, destroying your um, altars and killing your prophets. And then third, and to me this sounds like the culmination, and I am, wait, I alone am left and now they're trying to kill me. This is Elijah now. So he's had that rest, restoration in the desert. He's now been driven to the, the mountain of God, but he has confession to God is like, I've always been zealous. Those people aren't for you like I am, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too, right? I don't know how you read that. I first read that, and I'm like, man, Elijah believes that it's all up to him that he's God's only hope. <laughs> Man, if I don't do this, I don't know who's going to God because I'm the only one who's zealous for you like this, right? <laughs> but more importantly, perhaps, is Elijah believes in his heart he's all alone. He says, I alone am left. And you can read that and go, he means I'm the last one, but it means he's saying, man, God, there's nobody this suffering like I am. There, I'm all alone in this. There's nobody else. You can't possibly know the things I've gone through. Um, so he's sitting there and he's telling God all these things about being alone and being isolated. And there, and there I feel like, and this is fair enough if you don't agree with it, but he's just afraid of all these things. What could happen? And so he says, I'm alone here, and kind of then waits to see. So God gives him some commands, and he says this. He says, go out, and we're at verse 10, I believe. Um, nope, verse 11. The Lord said, Yahweh said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, because the Lord is about to pass by. Now, that's the NIV reading this text. It says this in the Greek, because I was like, or in the Hebrew, I was looking at it, and it says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. I'm passing by. It's going to happen. 
I'm going to move right through here. And you probably know this part of the story, but it says this, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. You've heard that before, right? So here's Elijah. I just want you to get the visual. He's in the cave of, of in, in the Mount Horeb. He's in the cave of the mountain of God. And then God confronts him. Why are you here? Right? In the middle of all of this, he's told, go out to the mouth of the cave, the entrance of the cave, because I'm passing by. And then all of a sudden, this wind comes that shatters rocks, right? And you already think, if you're on a mountain, that's already bad enough. Like, you can imagine there's rocks going by the entrance. You could just step there. I don't even know how wind shatters rocks, by the way, if you think about it practically. How does wind shatter a rock? But that's what the text says. It's the wind that blows and shatters rocks. And as if that's not bad enough, then the whole place starts to shake right? Now, just get the visual. You're in the mountain, and there's an earthquake. I was in some caverns, and they said, don't worry about earthquakes. This is the safest place you can be in an earthquake. And I'm thinking, I don't know that I agree with you. <laughs> I want to be on top of the stuff that's going to fall, not under the stuff that's going to fall. <laughs> so I would think if there's an earthquake while you're inside a cave, by the way, notice he's still inside the cave, it'd be terrifying. But the Lord wasn't in the quaking, the, no, the noise, right? The broken rocks, the wind, the quaking around him. It's called uh, Rosh. And then in the, in the middle of that, there's a fire, and the cons a consuming fire. And you know the word it says, God wasn't in the fire. You think back to like Moses in the burning bush, like this revelation to be had in fire, but this would be scary also. And there's fire, and now he's in the fire. Right now you're watching the forest fires on TV. You can you imagine being in there? And, but God isn't in that. It's this destructive force, and there's, it's just crazy, and it's terrifying, but he's not there in the fire in this case. And then lastly, of course, it gets to this. And then there was a gentle whisper, or the Hebrew says, a still, small voice. I want to go from that roaring wind. By the way, that the roaring wind is the same word that God used for his spirit, the spirit of power, right, in the Old Testament. But you go from that roaring wind, that great power, to the quaking that makes everything seem uncertain, to a fire that could burn up everything and destroy, to a wisp. A thin, small, fine, like dust. Whisper. Or a thin, small dust of silence. A dust of stillness. And in the middle of that, a sound. You can just get the sense that his life had gone from total chaos to total silence. And I love what happens here. Do you hear it? Because when Elijah hears it, 
he goes out to do what God told him to do initially. You know, isn't that funny? God says, go out there and stand on there. He doesn't move. He doesn't say he does anything. But when he hears the still, small voice of God, he wraps his face with what's a glory cloak, right? He's going to seek. He's going to experience God. And he covers himself, and he goes to the door of the cave, to the entrance, to the threshold, to the place where his safety confronts the danger of the world. He wraps himself and prepares himself to go out and stand in God's presence. He had not yet done it. And then standing in the mouth of the cave, God has his full attention. And what does he say? What are you doing here, Elijah? And I'm like, wait a minute, that's the same question you asked a minute ago. Before all the noise, before the fire, before the quaking, it's the same exact question. This, though, says, then a voice said to him, a sound came to him. And I think in reading the text that the first was the way that God had always revealed himself through Elijah to everyone else. And in the moment of that kind of, this is the way it normally is, Elijah didn't hear it. And he answered this question. But then God says this time to him directly after the silence, what are you doing here, Elijah? I want to say a couple things about that question. God knows where he is. And God knows who he is. Do you think that's true of you? Do you think God knows where you are and who you are? What you're facing in life? In verse 14, Elijah replies and he says the same thing. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me also. Elijah says the same thing to God the second time he asks the question, but listen to God's reply. God replies to Elijah with instructions. He tells him what to do. He says this, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimishai, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, listen to this, son of Snaphat, from Abel, Melona, to succeed you as prophet. I just want to stop there for a minute. In the middle of Elijah's, like, uncertainty about the possibility of the future, God's like, okay, here's the plan. Go anoint a king over, um, I think, uh, like, a, uh, is it the Samaria? I think it is. And then go anoint a king over Israel, and then go anoint a prophet that's going to take your place. In other words, I hear that as like, this war ain't even close to being over. I have a plan for everything. And as a matter of fact, if you continue to read on, he tells Elisha the plan. Why do those three things? Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death the prophet, any who escaped the sword of Jehu. So this idea that God's enemies will be driven out, that the battle is not lost, that things are not hopeless. 
And then check out verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. What? You know, my interpretation of that, and Elijah, you're not alone. I don't think he's seen at the discount Elijah and like what, how he'd use them. I think he's just saying, you're not the only one. I got 7,000 people just like you. This isn't all up to you. And I got a plan for this is going to happen. And as a matter of fact, if, okay, one final thing here, we're going to get off of this, but Elijah, I told you, is my God is Yahweh. That's what his name means. Uh, Eli, Elohim, my God is Yahweh, right? Uh, you're going to appoint a prophet named Elisha. You ever get those confused? I'll help you maybe remember it this morning. Elijah is Yahweh. Elisha is my God is salvation. My God is salvation. And so you go from Yahweh to salvation and God's plan for Israel that he is not done. And the very next thing that happens, we want to read it, in 1 Kings 19 is Elijah calls Elisha to be a prophet. That there's a successor for the work. And so he's called to go and do these things. God is telling him, go back, return on your way, and I am going to deal with my enemies. I'm going to deal with your enemies, and you are not alone. So that's where we end with Elijah here, right? What's going on? Three things I want to offer for you today. First, there are times in our life that we need to get quiet. And I'm not saying that's right now for you. But there are times that we need to get quiet to know he's God. The second thing is that God can speak into our chaos. Matter of fact, God asked the same question before and after. But God can speak into our chaos, into the things we're facing, the things we're fighting, the things we're afraid of, if we'll only listen. And then lastly, Jesus Christ himself repeatedly offers us peace. This is not going to preach this in the text, but I want to share it with you that you know that every time after his resurrection, Jesus showed up, he said what? Peace. Every time he came, remember he said, I give you peace. My peace I give to you. He offers us his peace. What peace is that? It's a peace that knows that God's enemies are destroyed. Listen to me. It's a peace that knows that God's enemies in our own life, in our own hearts, are destroyed in Christ Jesus. So what enemies are you facing today? What giants loom at the door? What lies are you still believing despite of the fact that Christ died for you and all of your sins? I just want to read to you this text from Philippians. I'm not going to preach it. I just want you to hear it because we know this text. But I want you to hear it, this idea of setting before God and knowing who he is. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near.
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with great thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I've been living that verse right there. Don't be anxious, but present your request to God. Why? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your heart. The peace of God will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. So do you need that today? Do you need peace? Do you need your heart and mind guarded in Christ Jesus? Uh, pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for the power of your word and the realization that um, like Israel and like uh, Elijah, um, we can get so caught up in the, 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 the business or the noise that we ignore you or we miss you. Not that you're not here, we just aren't attentive to you. So today, Father, I just pray that you would um, speak into our lives and that you would uh, encourage us, if you're calling us, to get quiet, to get quiet. To listen to your still small voice. Help us, Lord, as we reflect on that, on you and who you are, and on the peace that comes from Christ above all else, that we might know you better. We pray you would do this work for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.